Hey listeners, and welcome to the Foster Care Experience. My name is Shanice McCannuff, and I am the host and creator of this series. In this podcast, we aim to highlight the experience of survivors from the child welfare system and allow them to have a platform to educate the public on how severe the circumstances are for children and youth in care in Ontario. Since there is not a lot of content out there, throughout our journey, we will be highlighting some of the stigmas, ideologies, and assumptions made about youth and care. If you choose to follow us along this journey and watch us build a new, more stable system, I encourage you to do your part to educate yourself and spread awareness. In this episode, we are going to be speaking on an issue that inevitably affects every youth in the foster care system under the crown, and that is aging out. The child welfare system is a portion of government that has made it their duty to protect children. But what typically happens is that a child is moved from one dysfunctional situation to another while under the supervision of the system that was meant to keep them safer. When we reach legal age, the government abandons us, completely failing to do their job. They define what a fit parent is and is unable to fill those obligations. The government takes over legal responsibility and removes our parents from being our parents. If you are going to take on responsibility, you cannot just stop being our parents when we are not ready for you to. Reaching a particular age is not an indication that we are ready and equipped to be on our own, but the choice is out of our hands. Here to talk about this with us is Connor Lowe's. Connor Lowe's is a third-year student at the University of Toronto, pursuing his undergraduate's degree, majoring in ethics, society, and law, while minoring in bioethics. He has a strong passion for the law and advocating for the needs and voices of youth in and from care. He is also currently the president of Youth and Care Canada and has accomplished a lot through them. Connor has been working with Cheyenne Ratnam, the founder of Ontario Children's Advocacy Coalition, on reinventing the way children and youth age out of the foster care system. Here to tell us more, Connor Loves. Yeah, awesome. So thank you, uh, Shanice, for having me uh, on your first ever podcast. I'm so excited to, to be here. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about um, the readiness based system, the readiness indicators that we've been working on. Um, so, myself and Shani- um, not Shanice, you're Shanice, myself and Cheyenne uh, Retnam from OCAC, we've been working on um, building a readiness based system. And so, what that is, um, the goal of that, the goal of the readiness based system is to um, redesign the age out system and, in fact, just completely eliminate um, the aging out process. So. Um, the government will not be kicking youth out of care uh, when they turn 18. Instead, youth will be leaving care when they're ready uh, based on um, a a set criteria of readiness indicators, um, which would indicate uh, when the youth or young person is ready. Um, And that's uh, that's the goal. So our goal with with this system is to partner with the government uh, to implement and and create this system um, using um, and completely led by first voice advocates uh, Mm. as well as um, supporting councils and um, committees of um, first voice youth and first voice voice youth um, who have spent time in the system. Mm. And how did you and Cheyenne come up with this whole idea? Yeah, so the uh, idea of a readiness-based system actually isn't something new. We just found an, uh, this old idea and applied it as a new solution to this new problem. So when the uh, pandemic uh, happened, um, 
and the government had issued moratoriums on youth leaving care, meaning that um, they had issued us a, a, an order for youth to not age out of care anymore. Um, and, and they did that because Trudeau said, um, Trudeau said, we're not going to let these vulnerable people slip between the cracks during this difficult time. And so what Cheyenne and I thought, um, and, and what every youth advocate thought was, well, we've been asking for the shift for uh, quite a while now, and yet uh, we've never received it. And so for the government and for Trudeau to say, oh, well, youth are especially vulnerable right now, and they're facing issues of homelessness, and they're facing issues of financial insecurity, um, they're, they're facing instability in um, academic parts of their lives, in family parts of their lives, in, in um, food insecurity, they're facing all of these issues, and um, they're facing them because of the pandemic, so let's help them out because they're facing the, these issues, is, is incredibly ignorant to say, mm -hmm. because um, it implies that it's a new issue which is brought around because of the pandemic, and that's um, wholly inaccurate. Mm -hmm. uh, when in fact, um, youth have always been facing this, these issues. They've always been more at risk of homelessness, and they've always been more likely to go to jail than a person who grew up with their parents. They've always yeah. been more um, at risk to these issues, and yet now is the time when the government decides to step in and implement these moratoriums. So our idea was, if they don't have to age out now because of these issues, and we have always will always and will continue to err and will continue to face these issues before, during and after the pandemic, why should youth ever age out of care? Yeah. And that was the idea. And so the idea had already um, been around to eliminate the aging out system. And this was just something that we decided now is the time to advocate for this and, and really push um, for this. Mm -hmm. So um, with this whole controversy um, that's going around with, um, you know, kids feeling like they're not uh, being listened to and heard in the foster care system, do you think it would be better for uh, a lot of youth to extend the their living situation in care, if that makes sense, to keep yeah. them in care? I think I understand your question. I think, um, if I'm right, your question is asking that some youth don't want to stay in care, so why should they be forced to enter the system? Mm -hmm. uh, fantastic question. I think the answer to that is very simply that they would not be forced to be in care. Yeah. So it, um, they'd be able to leave whenever they're, mm -hmm. they're ready. So if a youth says, I don't want these supports and I don't need them anymore, um, they would just be able to, uh, to leave the system, so, right? Because it would be up to them. Yeah, so it's like giving them that option Absolutely. to stay and you know, not necessarily having the government decide when they're ready. That's right. I love that. Love that. So what do you think needs to happen to make this a reality? Yeah, so what we're looking at is essentially um, a complete revamp of and a complete reinvention of, um, of the current system. So the current system, as I mentioned earlier, as it stands, uh, is an age at one. So it's completely based on age indicators and how old are you, therefore, this is the result. Yeah. Um, in order for a readiness indicator system to happen, you would have to completely eliminate that, which would require um, a rethink and a reset, uh, and um, as coined by uh, Shan Ratnam, uh, an ethical systems reset yeah. of how you would uh, of how you think about youth leaving care. So youth leaving care are, are seen as a burden that you have to, and you get to have leave the system at a certain age, but that it, this system would require a rethink of that. And so instead of, instead of aging out at a certain age or getting to a certain age and then being forced to leave care, you'd have to think of them as, um, as you know, a regular parent would as, as a human, as when are they ready? Are they mm -hmm. ready? Can they survive not only 
by themselves, but can they survive hard times? Not just the good times on a good day. Can they survive hard times? Can they survive through a pandemic? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that the system would essentially require um, partnership from the government, mm-hmm. flexibility on behalf of the government, and uh, it would require first, in, or I guess not first, because it didn't say it first, but it would require uh, most importantly uh, the government to pay attention to how the system is being implemented, because first voice advocates will do it right. Yes, and they will do it in a way that is correct, mm-hmm. um, which is consulting the youth mm-hmm. who this new system will be affecting. Mm-hmm. And so if the government takes notes, so to speak, and mm-hmm. pays attention to how the first voice advocates will be implementing this change, they will be able to apply that method to future changes that they make mm-hmm. in the child welfare system. Mm-hmm. Um, so it requires flexibility from the government and, and really them to just pay attention on, on how they're going to, like first of first voice advocates are going to do it uh, and 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 what exactly it is that they're doing uh, and to to enforce it absolutely and what makes you think that this time they will listen uh, because I think a change uh, 2020 I think has brought about a unique situation where everything is changing and everything I think um, or at least most things and the things that we've seen and and society um, is working to change it are changing for the better mm-hmm. so I don't think any major changes are happening uh, well I, that's very ignorant I, I mean um, there are a lot <laughs> of there's a changes, lot of changes but happening. I mean like there are a lot of changes happening and, and what I was going to say is that um, the big changes that are happening are under more scrutiny now. That That is what I think is different about this time. So ignore what I just said, but essentially the thing that is different about this is that everything is under scrutiny. Yeah. So people are paying attention now. The, so- mm-hmm. the society as a whole is paying more attention to what is the government doing? Mm-hmm. They're sitting in their, in their homes, um, not you know at their jobs and not being consumed by that 24 seven. And they're thinking, oh, well, the government just released a plan about X and Y, and it's garbage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I never would have noticed that or caught that before, but it's garbage. And then they yeah. talk to somebody else who has been paying attention the whole time. They're like, welcome to the government. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's very easy to sort of criticize the government, um, Yeah. you know, in part because they do a lot of stuff wrong, but in, you know, they are the ones making the decisions. So um, not everybody's going to agree with their decisions. So it's, it's very easy to just pin it on, you know, pin the tail on the whole government and the government yeah. as a whole. But... Um, Essentially, what we're doing is we're looking at the people who make the decisions about youth and care and about the child welfare system, and we're saying, you're not doing this as well as you could be. Let us help you. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's different about this time, very specifically, and what I think you were asking from the start is what is different? What's different is now they're listening. Now yeah. they're saying, you're right. This does need to change. This has needed to change for a long time, and we are willing to let you help us. Mm-hmm. But my question would then be, because um, are you trying to target this um, on a more national level or just like a provincial level? Mm-hmm. I'm assuming national, right? Well, that is our goal is that eventually it's a national program and even an international program because if I think it works so well and if yeah. adapted to um, each country or, or, or place that it would be implemented in um, could work very well. But mm-hmm. I think, um, I think um, right now, it is just working on the, the provincial level because we can only change things yeah. on a provincial level because everything is different across Canada. So you can, just in the same way that you can't implement um, a school, like a change in schools across the country because that's mm-hmm. a provincial, that's a, something decided provincially. Mm-hmm. Um, so too uh, is this decision for the child welfare system. But what we are hoping is that all the other provinces will see, oh, Ontario did it so well. And Ontario had the resources and the time and the people who perfected it in Ontario. Yes. Um, and by perfected it, I mean they 
looked at it, treated it, and recognized it as an ongoing project and mm-hmm. as a working um, as a working project and, and constantly being improved and adapted. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, okay, well, let's start that in our province because they did it well. Let's just do what exactly. they did. Being like the the setter. The, exactly. The, yeah, the leader. Just trying to of lead this. by example. Exactly. But um, my next question would be: so, with in regards to Ford's administration, I know I liked what you said that you know it's really important to be able to understand the everybody within the government and not necessarily just listen to the news. Because let's be honest, we get a lot of our, our politics and like our information from the news, which is not always accurate, right? right? But there was a lot of concerning changes that was made way back in 2019 when Doug Ford had taken away the advocacy offices and reduced a lot of uh, funding for the child welfare system. And for what what seemed at that time it looked like he was trying to take away our voices and now he's listening now he wants to make these changes now because like my only concern is that he sometimes makes you know some false promises and we we're never entirely sure but um i remember that he wanted to also create a youth council for um foster care system or foster kids to kind of just like um, be like an advisor for um, him and his administration when dealing with the child welfare sector. And we still haven't heard back. And so my concern is that, you know, working alongside him, is he somebody who you would want to work with? Do you think that he would be best able to advocate and represent us um, or try to um, make these changes um, a reality for you and uh, Cheyenne? I think. I think really it's all about accountability. So yeah. I think I am happy to work with anybody who I th- who who is accountable for their actions, yes. who holds himself accountable, because it's really difficult to work with somebody when they say they're going to do something and then they don't, and then they don't have to answer to anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially not me, a person um, person who doesn't really have any authority o- mm-hmm. over anything that that they do. Um, but it's very difficult when you look at somebody's track record and they have a track record of not holding themselves accountable and not yeah, being held accountable. Exactly. Uh, and sort of shifting the, the, or I guess passing the buck of, um, of who's accountable for what, or if they don't like a decision, they say, well, it wasn't me that made the decision when in fact it was, or they did have complete control over, over the decision that was made, or they say, um, you know, I really wish I could do this, but I can't when in fact, um, they can. Yeah. Uh, so if you look at, you know, Doug Ford and recently said, you know, if I could put five children in each classroom, I would, you know, if it were up to me, I would do that. Yeah. And, uh, well, it is up to him. It is. <laughs> it is up to only him. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so that, that's sort of difficult and it makes it difficult to work with somebody. Um, and, and I recognize that you can't really please everybody, but yeah. the least you could do is, is be accountable for, for what exactly. you do. And if you're going to make a decision, make the decision and, and own it. Exactly. Um, and if you don't want to own it, it means you know that you made the wrong decision. So make a different decision. Mm-hmm. So when I look at, Oof, um, when I look at powerful. Doug Ford and whether or not I'd, I'd like to work with him and whether or not I can work with any minister or deputy minister or assistant deputy minister or, or anybody in the government, it's can I hold you accountable? Have you said I'm going to do this and have you shown that you are in fact going to do it? So when we meet with these people, when we meet with Mike Schreiner, the leader of the Ontario Green Party, when we meet with these people, these deputy ministers and these ministers of education and these these um, stakeholders like Monique Taylor and, um, and uh, Jill Dunlop, when we meet with these people and they say we love your idea, we want to work with you. We want you to to partner with us. We want to we want you to lead this this shift. And they say things like that. Do we see follow up? Exactly. Is it oh we'll we'll create a meeting with you and then two months later we haven't heard anything. Have they been following up? Um, from our meetings we haven't we have 
not set a date for any uh, follow-up or, or we haven't received anything at all from our meetings um, and um, to be fair to them it has been uh, obviously a hectic time with oh, yeah. considering um, question. considering the, the time mm -hmm. uh, but um, it's also I don't think it's been long enough for them to really create a response yeah. and I think that that is in part good I don't think that that's a bad thing because mm -hmm. I think that they want to get it right mm -hmm. so they don't want to respond right away with a promise that they can't keep and they don't want to um, respond right away with something that they can't do and so I think them taking their time um, I think them taking their time is a good thing um, but I think you only have a very small window here to, to create the change and so we only met with them in the last three weeks and when we set a meeting we set a meeting for three weeks ahead of time so I think we should be hearing back from them soon but uh, I also think that you know it's the government and mm -hmm. in the law and in the government things work slow so mm -hmm. um, I think it's alright that things are going slowly but at the end of the day, I think they will be accountable for, for what they've uh, agreed with us because they really don't have any other option. Yeah. <laughs> Are they going to, what, design a system? This is a perfect opportunity right now when everything is absolutely crumbled to just build it back up in a way that's better and then pretend like you meant to do that all along. Yeah. And so right now they have a system that doesn't work and that's evident by the fact that they extended the moratoriums until December 31st mm -hmm. and so they have four more months to pick a plan and to choose it and to implement it and to create something that they can actually um, sustain and maintain and enforce mm -hmm. and if they don't do anything in that time they will have royally screwed themselves and I, I don't think that uh, I don't think that that's something that yeah. they'll do hopefully. there's so much to unpack there because the one idea is that they've taken their yes in government it takes time to really mm -hmm. see um, things like to see real action and it also takes votes it takes you know um everybody having the majority um to pass certain like legislation is that correct i would i would think so yeah yeah and so but i've we've also noticed that like you know when it comes to public pressure things do to you know happen a lot quicker mm -hmm. so is that what the government needs to really take the child welfare system a lot more seriously a lot more public pressure to make these things happen faster because regardless these are important things they are the legal guardians for thousands of children right and i think it is so important to really prioritize their health and well-being and their safety mm -hmm. right and yeah. yeah i i think it's it's interesting because the government the government decides and again it's the hegelian you know you it's the the, the government the government as a whole the people in power who have the authority and the decision-making power to make the decisions about these topics um, they set as a standard, this is what you must do to be a parent. This is what you must do to be a fit parent. Exactly. And um, if you don't meet this standard, or if they even think, or even if somebody complains anonymously that you do not meet the standard, they take your children away, uh, and that's it. They don't ask questions. They just come and take them away. They say, it's a matter of safety. Uh, and then they, they storm in and, and take your children and leave. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it's a lengthy process to get them back from the person who took them from you in the first place. But mm -hmm. that, that's another issue. And so they give this standard of this is what a fit parent is, and yet they don't even hold themselves to that standard. Exactly. So, and, and the sort of proof of that is um, in the Children uh, or the Child Youth Family Services Act, um, they say, well, you know, you're not allowed more than four, four children in a foster home, and this is for one of two reasons. One, uh, we want to prevent foster farms as much as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, which is, uh, for, for those who don't know, foster farms are uh, when a, a foster parent will take in several children just to be able to collect the paychecks off of them and not really yeah. do it for the I want to help and, and the one-to-one -one with children. It's, ah, well, if I have seven children sitting at home and they, you know, 
afford me, you know, $30 a day or, you know, each $30 each a day, whatever. And I have seven children. So I have $210. Great. Uh, okay. Uh, and I can pay a nanny $150 to take care of them. I make 60 bucks a day from doing nothing. Passive income. Mm -hmm. the, they're trying to avoid that. Uh, and second of all, uh, they're trying to make sure that, um, by limiting the amount of, um, children and youth allowed in foster homes, it, it, it makes it more likely that they're going to get the attention that they need. And so if four is the limit that the government itself set as the most children a person can readily and, and really take care of um, at one given time, then how does the government expect to do um, a good job taking care of the 7,000 young people uh, who age out of care per year that are mm -hmm. still under their care and that still have... Um, still have their parents as the government uh, being yes. rewarded. So it's there's a lot of sort of contradicting and, and contradiction in the government and in the legislation that they put out and expect people to follow and then in the standards that they set themselves uh, to and, and that they hold themselves to. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of sort of inequalities there mm -hmm. um, and, and there's a lot of hypocrisy there. Um, oh, but yeah. again, this is exactly why that they need to listen to First Voice Advocates who have experienced this system and been like, yeah, this is trash. Um, because otherwise it'll never get better because otherwise you're just running a restaurant and taking a suggestion box from the servers who work there instead of the customers who have eaten there and been like, yeah, your food is garbage. And you've just, you know, um, taking feedback from the servers. You're like, yeah, the food looks good. You know, so exactly. you're not going to learn anything from the food look good. You're going to learn from the person who's like, yeah, um, did you pour a bucket of salt on my meat? Like, this is <laughs> awful. Like, I, this is disgusting. Yeah. You know, so, um, you need to take feedback from the people who are so willing to give it to you at no cost. At um, no cost. And, and yeah. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you, do you think that you're ready to age out at 18? Cause the, obviously there's two major, um, milestones or I guess two major ages in which a youth and foster care system ages out. So 18 is when you age out of the possession of the government. And then 21 is when you stop getting the financial um, supports from the government. And that's if you were a crown ward. That's so if, if you, you were, were a crown ward. If you were never a crown ward. And so the distinction there is a crown ward means, uh, well, literally, a, a ward of the crown, a ward of the state, a ward of the province. So you are um, a person um, who belongs to the government, whose care and is under the care of the government. Mm -hmm. So if you are a crown ward, and you are so lucky to be a crown ward, if you are, um, then you are afforded the opportunity to maybe access these services. And so uh, that ends at 21 currently, and you age out at 18. So when you turn 18, the day of, and, and this is why most um, youth in care are scared to turn 18, they're petrified of their 18th birthdays, because oh, yeah. the day you turn 18, it's see you later, um, and the foster parent, in, nor the CAS, nor the government, has any obligation to uh, provide care for you any further. So if you're in a foster home uh, at that point, uh, like I was, and at 18 years old, you turn 18, and there is there was two weeks for me between the time I turned 18 and the time I could live on residence at university. So in that time, I was, for all intents and purposes, considered homeless. Yeah. But thankfully, the foster parent that I had at the time was like, no, it's okay, you can stay with me for those two weeks because that would seem ridiculous otherwise. Yeah. Um, but if I had not received that from the, the literal grace of her heart is, is, you know, crappy as that sounds. And this is exactly why it needs to change because it does sound crappy. Um, then I would have wh like, what would I have done? What would you have done? You don't have any parents. You don't have any siblings. You don't have any money. Uh, what are you going to do for two weeks before you have to move into to residence at university? Like, yeah. like what, you know? So, um, uh, the system would have failed me, and I only needed two weeks. Some people need a little more than that. Some people may have needed two days. If their birthday was August 29th, they needed two days. Some people needed 
a different amount of time. Everybody needs a different amount of time. Everybody has the right to decide this is when I'm ready. Mm -hmm. And if you ask a parent, if you talk to a parent and they're like, oh, um, you know, um, I used to be a parent and the person's like, oh my God, like what? I'm so sorry if you're a loss. And you're like, oh no, like they didn't die. Like they just turned 18. Like, and so I just kicked them out and I don't talk to them anymore. And you're like, yeah. oh, like Oof. you sound like a total piece of crap. Like, you know, like you're an awful parent. We would say like, you're, you're joking, right? Like you're an awful parent. So why do we accept that from the government? Why do we continue to expect that and allow that from the government when we don't even allow it from, from the parents because the government says that we can't allow that from, from, from parents so it's exactly yeah it's very so then very my critical. question would be um because the role of the government caring for children looks very very different what should be the role of a government as a legal guardian as a parent you know how that should that yeah. look like should they care for the foster kids as if it's their own child that they have at home yeah well i think this is where um this question sort of opens up um opens up the, the the possibility to have some sort of rhetoric from the government and like yo we'll just we'll have seven thousand kids a year live in queen's park that's suitable right no obviously that's not what we're saying what we're saying is you guys should care more and the way that you can show that is by partnering with first voice advocates to create a readiness based system so that youth can decide when they're ready to leave care whether they need a day whether they need six hours whether they need two weeks whether they need a year or two because they had a child at 15. like whether or not they're ready is completely up to the youth. And so by leaving that up to the youth and, and leaving the decision of whether or not I'm ready to leave care up to the youth, you don't have to do anything other than let them decide for themselves and provide a system that's there to catch them if they're not ready and there to hold them until mm -hmm. they are ready. And not hold their hand, I mean support them. And so Absolutely. Um, uh, I, I had a fantastic follow-up to this. Just give me a second. Like, going off of that, I really do think that the government, just the foster care system as the as a whole should really try and prioritize preparing youth in the foster care system for independence. Like there's so many kids in care who don't know how to properly budget or apply for credit cards or all these things that is absolutely necessary to be independent yet they expect them to be ready at 18 years old. So shouldn't that absolutely like be one of the number one priorities for the government is prepping them for maturity not at, for a particular at a particular age for, per se but just independence as a whole yeah i think they should they they should and they absolutely very easily could do a much better job at preparing youth for independence and i go back to the compare it to a family example so i mean it's roughly around 10% of, or less than 10%, it's like 0.3%, uh, at least in, in, in America, if the same as to Canada, it's probably better, to be honest. But anyway, so if the rates are around the same, or even generous, let's double them. So let's say 0.6%, rounding up to 1% of youth graduate who, who are in care graduate from university or college. So if we look at, a fa if we say, okay, a family had uh, 100 kids, uh, and only one of them went to university or graduated from university, you'd be like, you guys are awful parents. How are you allowed to have kids? If we said, okay, so let's round it down to 10 because nobody has 100 kids, right? Okay, so somebody had 10 kids, big family, and none of them went to university. Statistically, none of them went to university. In fact, only one of them had a 10% a, a chance of going to university. Wow. Or, or sorry, of graduating from university. You'd be like, you, what did you do wrong? 
Well, great question. Ask the government. They're the ones who this family and the statistics in this family represent. Mm -hmm. If you said that to a family and you're like, yeah, I, I had 10 kids and none of them went to university, but I tried to get them already. I just don't know what happened. Like you mm -hmm. failed 10 times in a row. Seriously. Yeah. You'd be like, you guys are awful parents. I'm going to report you and take your kids away. And yeah. so we don't do that to government. That's interesting. And so that's kind of why like this podcast is so important because we're trying to talk about all these major issues that is preventing kids from being able to have a successful future and actually being able to go on to post-secondary education. Because some of those things that interferes with that is mm -hmm. being moved around from city to city to province, or not necessarily provinces, but like from region to region, home to home, school to school. And every single time that they have to move, their likelihood of being able to properly uh, you know, graduate goes down significantly. Yeah. And so there's so many things wrong with the foster care system that needs to happen in order for a youth to actually be successful. And so th these conversations are the starting point of yeah. something really massive. And I think that the government really should start to listen and hear that we see what's going on. All right, so we're gonna close off with one more question if that's yeah. okay with you. So I really do want to know, what does this mean for those who've already turned 21, who are no longer getting any kind of supports from the government? You know, are, you know what are we going to do for them? Yeah, so I, um, uh, to be honest, I'm not really sure uh, what that looks like. The, the, the readiness-based system hasn't been completely developed yet. And really, I, I don't even know if it would... I think that's a, an issue for a different project. Mm. Um, and so what my non-answer essentially means is that uh, the project is focused on aging out and leaving the system and it doesn't touch at all uh, under the name, uh, under, under the, the name, name itself, it, it doesn't touch um, people who have already left. So I think that that would be something that we'd have to add in or that we'd have to decide. And we'd, we'd most importantly have to ask, ask them, what do you want? You know, you're 28 years old, are you whatever? Do you, what do you need? Um, uh, so I think that that would be the the appropriate protocol there, but I'm I'm not really sure, and it's not mm -hmm. something that we've sort of included in in the the very limited and, and mm -hmm. broad plan that we have already yeah. planned. But um, it sparks the idea. It does so spark the idea. It is something very important to think about. So I'm I am glad you brought it up, uh, and I also I also think that um, there's something unique about this readiness based system is that it it's it's um, the the pandemic has provided us with a very unique. Um, sort of litmus test for new projects and new businesses and new ideas yeah. and, and new systems of um, is this system pandemic proof? And mm. I truly believe that this readiness-based system is pandemic proof and, and here's why. The pandemic um, produced all these issues uh, for youth and, and not really produced, actually, that's really inaccurate to say. It does, did not produce new issues for youth. The pandemic exacerbated the issues that youth were already facing and young people were already facing. And so um, there were already systems in place to help these young people, right? For financial insecurity, for academic insecurity, for familial uh, insecurity, if that's even a thing, um, for uh, food insecurity, for homelessness. There were already plans and, and steps and, and things in place to sort of help these. Now, because this system solves all of those issues, that's where funding can be taken from, yeah. um, in a sense, because it is solving that issue. So um, instead of having to um, purify Lake B, which leads into the Lake C, and instead of having to purify both Lake B and Lake C, just purify Lake B because it leads into Lake C. So you don't even need to worry about Lake C. You can take away that processing plant because it's purified at Lake B. It's fine. So um, 
you know, as, as a sort of rough analogy. So I think um, if you really look at it, like if you look at the government, they had to pay for SERP, right? X billion dollars. They had to pay for uh, this support, X billion. They had to pay for youth staying in care beyond the age that they normally would have aged out, X, uh, X amount of money. Yeah. But if you would have had the readiness-based system, it would have been, well, we don't have to do anything. Yeah. They already leave when they're ready to leave. And right now they're not ready to leave. So it doesn't cost us anything extra. It just costs us what the program already costs. So zero dollars. So while CERB is costing you $17 billion per per month or per, per whatever, um, this is costing you absolutely nothing. And in fact, it's saving you money from the systems that the youth are leaving and entering into like homelessness and prison systems and, and mm -hmm. XY because you, you stopped the issue before it was before it was uh, an issue. And so that's that's why this this system is so awesome and and so unique because the pandemic has provided us with the opportunity to make it pandemic proof and to start with the end in mind uh, with with saying that this this system will be good for the next pandemic and it will work even through the next pandemic because it's so easy to to say oh well the government's doing x and y wrong and because there's so much that they're doing wrong but it's even harder to say here's what we're going to do about it and it's even less likely that the government will listen to you when you say that so that's why this is uh, uh that that's again why this is so unique because the government is listening the government is not only listening but they're asking for help just yeah. like you think have been doing for the last 40 years the government is saying yeah we don't actually know what we're doing here would you just like really low-key help us um <laughs> and and that's absolutely what uh what first voice advocates are doing and, and are ready to do um and we're going to to show them how we're going to demonstrate yeah this is how you do it this is how it should be done and this is how you should do it in the future ask first voice advocates what what is the problem ask them how can we fix it keep them on the table and at the table well no maybe not on the table that's a little weird but keep them at the table where you have those discussions of we're going to be doing this what do you think of that constant check-ins constant and, and and by learning by the government learning how how the first voice advocates are going to do it by watching them they will have learned by example what it sh how it should look and how it should be done in the f in the future um, <laughs> yeah yeah that's amazing well thank you so much connor for coming on our show you have been so incredibly informative in the work that you have been doing over the past few years it's been an honor to watch and see you grow. And you know, you are in the correct position. You've already always had the, the mindset of a leader and um, you definitely are the voice of the youth. And so thank you for coming on our show, sharing your story, sharing your you know, project with us and sharing your life with us to be completely honest. And so if you want to give yourself a shout out, plug in everything that you're currently working on, um, absolutely you could take the next one minute to do so. <laughs> awesome. well, thank you so much um, for your kind word, Janice. Honestly, it's so great to, um, it's, it's, I'm just happy to be on here. I'm happy to be listened to, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so thank you. Thanks. And I'm, I'm certain, hoping it's not going to be the last time I'm I'm on. Um, and uh, I'll be seeing you all again. Drop a like and subscribe. Um, <laughs> and what? Twitter, yeah. I guess you guys can follow my Twitter. I mean, if you really want, that's where most of my work is is posted. So and, and updates on that, and like you know, like subs to the government, being like, "Yo, you did this wrong, you stupid idiot." Like, <laughs> you do have the chance to decide how many kids are in the class, and that's like pulling up to a fire as a fireman and being like, "Yo, somebody should put that out, bro." I would if I could with the hose in your hand. Like anyway, um, but uh, follow me at Connor Lowe's on Twitter, uh, and uh, you can follow the Youth and Care Canada Twitter as well. Um, which I have a large part in running. So that's uh, at Youth in Care. On Facebook, you can go like uh, the Youth in Care Canada Facebook page if you really want. Um, and I will link down all of his information down below. So please go check him out. He is an amazing human being. You should definitely, definitely look into the work that he's doing because he's making some large impacts 
on a very large scale. So, uh, yeah. Thank you guys so much. Uh, and if you guys can't find me, it's because you're spelling my name wrong. So it's C O N N and then an E. Nope, uh, that's backwards. An E and then an R. So it's uh, it's different from the old Irish spelling, but if you spell it right, uh, you'll, you'll surely find me. So thank you guys. Thank you again, Shanice and, and Tech Team. So thank you guys so much. Uh, my pleasure. For being here and for we will me. see you again for sure.